Let us pray. O Lord, by your word you make us alive in the life of your Son. Give us the treasure of that word always, even connected to the visible elements in your sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, so that we who are dead in trespasses and sins may enjoy eternal life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear fellow redeemed, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for our meditation this morning is from the 119th Psalm, the fourth stanza, verses 25 through 32. Please rise. My soul clings to the dust. Make me alive according to your word. I have recounted my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your engraved commands. Give me understanding of the way of your regulations, and I shall muse on your wonders. My soul drips from grief. Stand me up according to your word. Take the way of deception away from me and grace me with your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set before me your judgments. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. I will run the way of your commandments, for you shall make room in my heart. These are your words, Heavenly Father. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Dalet is the Hebrew letter that begins each of the eight verses of this stanza, and Dalet makes the D sound. And it's in this connection that I want you to remember one particular English word that begins with D. That word is dust. And it's there in the first verse. It doesn't begin with the Dalet in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for dust is is different from that, but that's besides the point. In this stanza, the psalm is starting to take a turn. And it turns on the idea of that word, dust. The first three stanzas emphasize the importance of God's word and the blessing that we receive and the delight and the good that we get from God's word. We even saw how the world would combat those who held to God's word. But now, our grief takes on a new dimension. We ourselves are in the dust. And what's more, as God told Adam, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dust means death. And now it's not death because of any persecutors or enemies. Instead, no, we are in the dust of death simply because of our sinful nature, which we have inherited from our father Adam. And because we ourselves live in sin every day. Learn from this psalm, therefore, that when we look for enemies of God's word, we may not have to look any farther than our own flesh. And nevertheless, we have the promise. Even at our lowest point, which is demonstrated in this psalm, we have the promise that God makes us alive according to his word. Through that word, he stands us up, and therefore we who are stuck in the dust are now able not only to walk, but to run. It was God's judgment that man must die. We saw the curse he laid on Adam, that he would return to the dust. After that proclamation, God also demonstrated it vividly with deeds. Now, so that he does not reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the soil from which he had been taken. So he drove the man out 
And in front of the Garden of Eden he stationed cherubim and a flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. It is the Lord who has cut men off from life. Of course, that was due to man's sin. But it was God's pronouncement of law condemnation that established that punishment. St. Paul said the law came in to increase the trespass. The point is that sin was there, but God underscored it. God poured salt into the wound, so to speak. As soon as Adam and Eve bit the fruit, they knew they had done wrong. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for their waists. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But that wasn't sufficient. First, God confirmed their realization. Yes, they had sinned. And then he laid a curse on them, pain, suffering, toil, and death. And then he cast them out. He excommunicated them from the garden. Thousands of years later, he set it in stone on Mount Sinai, giving Moses the tablets with the Ten Commandments. With all these things, man could do nothing but recognize more and more clearly how far we had fallen. And so we confess how far we have fallen in this verse. My soul clings to the dust. A common Ash Wednesday tradition is to impose ashes on the foreheads of the worshipers. And that's a confession of precisely this, that by virtue of our sin, we are marked for death. We belong to death. But the interesting thing about that tradition is this, that the ashes are frequently imposed in the shape of a cross, signifying that in Jesus, our death died. Our sins were laid on him. And so we look forward to the resurrection that comes out of that same dust. This life from death pattern is not just something we look forward to on the last day when Jesus returns. It's the cycle of the Christian life. In our baptism, it signified that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die with all sins and evil lusts, and that a new man daily come forth and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And so this is the prayer we offer every day. My soul clings to the dust. Make me alive according to your word. With the sign of Jesus' cross, which marked us in our baptism, our day, our life, is renewed. The Latin Vulgate translates the word for dust as pavimento, or pavement. This depicts for us a paved walkway. Human souls cling to their own paved walkways. And we tell our Lord, I have recounted my ways. We tell him where we've walked, what roads we've built for ourselves, not because we're looking for a pat on the back like the Pharisee in Jesus' story, but because we know that we've gone off track. We need mercy, like the tax collector of that story. It's as though we're asking for directions. Teach me your engraved commands. Get me back into the grooves that you have gouged into stone so that I'm not going astray. And we want to improve, 
to grow. Give me understanding of the way of your regulations, and I shall muse on your wonders. We beheld those wonders, extraordinary things, but we haven't come to a full understanding yet. We never will. But the more God teaches us, the more He gives us His Word, the more we will grow in our understanding. But those regulations, God's supervision of our lives, aren't they too heavy a burden? Isn't the only thing that we get from those Ten Commandments all the things that we have failed to do? In the first place, yes, that is what we get from those Ten Commandments. The burden of God's law is immense. A picture of what it does to a soul is given in this stanza. My soul drips from grief. I picture something akin to surrealist painter Salvador Dali's use of melting clocks. If you've ever seen those paintings, you'll never forget them. Art critics debate the meaning of those painted clocks, but one impression remains about those melting timepieces and its weariness, its despair, or perhaps even the sense that there is meaning somewhere, but it's slipping through our fingers like melted butter, and we're too tired to hold on to it. Your God has commanded you, you shall have no other gods before me. And we think that's easy. I'm off to a pretty good start here. Or perhaps even, even if I fail in every other commandment, I'm never going to worship another god, so I'll keep that one. But yes, even this commandment slips through our fingers. It's so easy to see the world falling astray, to condemn its sexual deviancy and any other sin that appears very obvious to us. But then as soon as it's your son or daughter, or your close friend, and you see that that person hasn't stopped being the person that you love, and maybe, just maybe, by embracing their homosexuality or transgenderism, they're actually starting to do some good in their own lives. Maybe they seem happy in their lives for the first time. You might start to wonder, maybe this isn't so bad. Now, that's a social issue. What about something more personal? We know we should go to church and read our Bibles and instruct our families in the truths of Scripture, but you know that takes so much time. And as long as my family is happy and healthy, and I know where my faith stands, I know it, well, we'll do those things when we can. Start to take stock of all these things. When's the last time you read your Bible? When's the last time you had a family devotion? When's the last time you prayed in the morning and in the evening? And what is it that would win out if it came down to brass tacks if you were asked to sacrifice that or your faith? It's easy for us to say, I'll never sacrifice that faith. But we should call upon ourselves to really analyze the things that we value in our life. When we realize our failure, our wickedness, and our sin in comparing ourselves to those Ten Commandments, then is when our souls begin to drip from grief. What can we do? Only God can save us. And so we plead, stand me up according to your word. Twice that phrase is spoken according to your word. 
For God to make us alive and to stand us up according to His Word means as He has promised in His Word. And so we search that Word. We search His promises to see if life is actually something that He has said He would give us. If standing us up is something that He has said that He would give us. And it is not by our merit, but God promises by His grace given in His Word. St. Paul showed how these promises are fulfilled. But God, because He is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in trespasses. It is by grace you have been saved. He also raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you see, into our dust, into our dripping despair, our death and our bondage came Jesus, God's Son, God Himself, stooping down. And as He formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, so Jesus got His own holy self, filthy in the clay of our sin, lifted us up in His image and breathed into us the life of His righteousness through word and sacrament. And so now standing, we're able to run. There are two branching ways and only two ways in the world. There's the way of deception, as our psalm calls it. The way that Satan takes, which he tempts others to follow to their destruction. It's the way of our flesh and it's the way of the world. And then there is the way of God's law, his Torah, the clear roadmap, the way to life. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter through it. How narrow is the gate and how difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so our prayer is the response of a heart that cannot find that narrow way, cannot keep itself on that narrow path who realizes that we are, by nature, on that broad way to destruction. Take the way of deception away from me and grace me with your law. It is, after all, the law of God, His Word, His Torah, that is the remedy. When Jesus was tempted, Jesus declared, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. The way follows. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set before me your judgments. The way of truth is not the devil's way, who is known as the father of lying. The way of truth is not the world's way, for the world goes after false gods and forgets the true God. The way of truth is not the way of our flesh, either, because we are all liars ourselves, deceiving our own souls. But the opposite of the way of deception is God's judgments, His judicial declarations, what He has declared guilty and what He has declared righteous. And we have this assurance of God's judgments. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, this is another deception that must be turned away Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to various laws, says St. Paul. 
Satan will sit at your ear and whisper that you're not good enough, that you haven't done enough, that you can't actually rely on the redemption of Christ because you haven't done enough. See, this demonstrates the two lies that we live in, one on either side, pride on one, believing that we can earn our own redemption, and despair on the other, believing that we are irredeemable. Really, they both are a form of pride. Despair is pride in our sinfulness, sinfulness, believing that you're just too sinful to save. Sure, Jesus died for sins, but your sins are too much. Against these lies, hold up the cross of Christ. By his very death, he proved the immense cost of your sin. To say you have no sin or very little sin is to make him into a liar. And also by his death, he paid for the sins of the whole world. There is no sin too great for him to have paid for. That includes every one of your sins. Clinging to that cross, we say, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. His promises are reliable. We can hold him to those promises. In the cross, God's testimonies are founded. He says, you will live because Jesus died. He says, you are forgiven because Jesus died. The cross marks your forehead and your heart in your baptism so that whereas before your soul did cling to the dust of death, now your soul clings to the death of Christ. And through that death is life. We bear our crosses in this life, various pains that come upon us from the devil, the world, and our own flesh. And it's easy to think that God has abandoned us in these times or that He never existed in the first place. But faith clings to the cross of Christ and says, I know that through the cross, Jesus has bought me a glorious resurrection. His resurrection is also mine. As Job confessed, in the depths of his despair and pain, clinging to the dust, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the end of time He will stand over the dust. Then even after my skin has been destroyed, nevertheless in my own flesh, I will see God. No, God's promises will not become invalid. He will not let us be ashamed of believing in His Word. He will keep those promises. It's in this confidence that the last verse of this stanza comes through. We were dead. We were dripping with despair. We were stuck in the dust. God stood us up. God cleaned us off in baptism. God made us alive, nourishing us with the bread and, and, and wine, which are the body and blood of His Son. God gave us His promise and laid out the path before us. So now, if we know that path and we know where it goes, how should we behave? It's a broad path right in front of us. Yes, Jesus says it's a narrow way, but God has made it clear where it is. Do you not know, says St. Paul, that when runners compete in the stadium, they all run, but only one receives the prize. Run like that to win. If we're following God's commandments and testimonies and word, 
the path is sure. So let's go. I will run the way of your commandments, for you shall make room in my heart. We are able to run in such a way because of this room that God has made. He has freed us from the bondage of the law, tearing off the chains of the letter and breathing into us pure spirit so that like prisoners whose prison wall has just been broken down, we run like mad to freedom. And in this, he also continues to make room through his sanctification. He improves our understanding as we daily study his word. As we pray at the beginning of our divine service, we pray you to open our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that through the preaching of your word, we may be taught to repent of our sins, to believe on Jesus in life and death, and to grow day by day in grace and holiness. And so we keep improving according to God's commandments, doing what he requires, but not because it earns us salvation. We're already alive. We're already on our way to life, but we do it out of thanks and praise for that salvation. Jesus willingly put himself into the dust of our death. He himself was weighed down by that heavy burden of God's law. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God sent his son to be born of a woman so that he would be born under the law in order to redeem those under the law so that we would become adopted as sons. Remember how Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Remember how he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember how he starved in the wilderness while Satan tempted him. Remember how he was whipped and scourged. Remember how his guts ached and went out for the suffering people because he understood their suffering and grief. All of this Jesus did for you, so that you, his beloved bride, his church, you who are stuck in this dust of death and grief and despair so that you might have life. According to his human nature, Jesus had to grow in wisdom. As St. Luke records, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Growing in God's word is also part of what Jesus did for you. And so he now also causes you to grow in that same word by which his Holy Spirit comes to you with his forgiveness life, and salvation. He makes you alive. He stands you up. And now you may run. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.